For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger For the ones who get it done. What's up, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls around the world? I would like to welcome you back to the Real Talk with Zuby podcast. Now, on today's episode, we've got on a long-awaited guest. He is a best-selling author. He is a well-known international fitness trainer and all-around motivator. And this is, of course, the one and only James Smith. Welcome to the show, man. Thank you very much for having me on. Looking forward to having a chat today. Awesome, man. It's so good to have you on, bro. So I've done a brief intro there, but for people who aren't familiar with who you are and what you do, Please tell them a little bit about yourself. Uh, for the most part, just a regular personal trainer who I think caught the big boom of social media probably in the last four years uh, and used that to get my message across where there's a lot of misinformation in fitness. And you can tell there's always, the, you can tell how the public react to something and how big the problem is by what you put out to social media and how it kind of gravitates with them. And I think I'm one of the fortunate ones that's, ridden the wave to now do my work online. Awesome, man. What do you think it is about your message in particular that's really resonated with people? I think that I come from a place of frustration and almost use social media to vent that frustration. I think that the fitness industry is full of a lot of people that don't require a lot of effort to be in good shape. There's something called the swimmer's body illusion where some people swim because they want to get the physique of a swimmer but they don't realize that swimmers don't look the way they do because they swim. They swim because of the way they look. So same respect in rugby. People say, oh, you're big and broad because you play rugby. I say, no, I'm, I'm big and broad. So then I played rugby. And the fitness industry is one of these places where whoever's got the most effortless six-pack or the most bulging shoulder-to-waist ratio makes their way to the top echelon of trainers, where myself, I struggled with it my whole life. So I kind of understand the pain points people are in. So when I vent my message or my frustrations, I think a lot of people go, oh, this guy actually understands where I am right now and where I want to be. Yeah, no doubt, man. So I'm curious to find out a little bit more about your your background. So tell us a little bit about your story. Where are you from? How did you grow up? How did you even get into this whole world of doing what you're doing? So I grew up in a county in the UK called Berkshire and uh, wanted to play rugby for the majority of my younger years. And then I was kind of propping up my rugby with whatever job I could. And then I went to university and the jobs before that didn't really have any impact on my life. But I got to university and realized I wasn't that great at rugby. <laughs> you know, I went to the perfect place to discover that. And I, I was very fortunate to that early on. And I found myself kind of falling into the traditional nine till fives, the sales jobs, the marketing jobs, even got a stint in recruitment. And Although I'd have like little quarter life crises where I'd quit jobs, go travel, come back and try and get back into what I would, what I would think was the real world. And then I came to realize after a few years that, you know, this is, this isn't what I want. I don't want to be putting on a shirt and tie every day. I don't want to be corporate. I don't want to conform and pretend 
that I care about the conversations that are happening in the office. So I took a, a sharp curve and I was like, do you know what? I care about being in good shape. I'm going to become a personal trainer. And I was very fortunate with the sales and the marketing and the recruitment backgrounds that I knew how to write an email. I knew a little bit about the sales process. And I think that a lot of people that are self-employed don't realize how many different people you have to be to run a business. Um, and yeah, that's pretty much it. I became a PT at 24. I'm now 32. Okay. And what was the, so when you first became a PT, did you go independent straight away or did you work for an existing gym? Yeah, straight away. I decided I wanted to be self-employed. I had so much time before almost working for the man. And, uh, my, my dad, for instance, spent 50 years in the same business. Like he was the T-boy when he started off and he was the director when he left. And he says to me, son, work for yourself. And he said, do whatever you can to become tax efficient. And it's crazy that we live in a world where if you take the risk of becoming self-employed, everything becomes easier. You know, suddenly petrol, you can write that off. This, you can write that off. You know, anything, the more creative people want to get, the more they can write off. The whole system in place is kind of anyone small-minded or with, uh, you know, no greater vision to the world that they exist in doesn't realize that the more risks you take, it almost plays back into life being easier, life being more cost efficient. You know, most people, including myself for a very long period, were taking an allocation of work and spreading it over the time allocated. Every corporate person does this between nine and five. And the other kind of caveat to that is every corporation, from my experience, is going to pay you the least amount of money for the most amount of work. And no one sat back and going, this is a really bad deal. Yeah. Well, I think that's how people are trained, right? All through school, even university, et cetera. You're taught about how to get a job. It's all about getting a job, right? It's never, at least for me, and I don't think for most people, it was never about this is how you start a business or this is how you become an entrepreneur. Or, this is uh, how money works. This is how you can do this, do that. It's all about getting a job. You know, I mean, I went to Oxford University and even there, it's all about you know, get a degree and then get a job, you know, do this and you can become attracted to employers, etc. And one thing that's really interesting with the story you just told is it very much parallels, even down to probably dates, uh, me venturing off and becoming a full-time independent musician. Um, I worked in the corporate world until 2011, so 2008 to 2011. And then, you know, November 2011, I took the big jump and I said, hey, I want to go and pursue my music stuff full time. Been doing it full time now for about 10 years. Like yourself, just straight away went independent, didn't try to get with a label or a big company or whatever. And yeah, it really resonated with me because we, we both built up our own platforms, our own audiences. There hasn't been a blueprint or a guidebook telling you to do this and then do that. And we've both just done it in creative ways. And most of all, and this really resonated when I first discovered you online was authenticity. I think one thing that really rings true with both of our messages, one thing that I really like with what you do, and you alluded to this earlier, is it's just truthful and open and honest and authentic. And I think we live in a, a time and an age where that's a lot more rare than it should be, whether you're talking about the music world or the fitness world, corporate world, media, whatever. There's all these illusions and smoke and mirrors and people pretending to be things they're not people putting on fronts whatsoever. So I think when someone like yourself is just true, no nonsense, no BS, and just cuts right through it, people really appreciate and resonate with it. 
I would, I think it's, it's two things. It's definitely from a values perspective. But I think as well, there's certainly an element of it where I'm conscious that authenticity is a scarcity. And I'm, I'm definitely doing it from a position of what I find is important, but also at the same time, I think that people have really, especially in the last 10, 15 years, underestimated how intelligent consumers are. And I think a lot of influencers and a lot of blue tick celebrities seem to think they've just got huge crowds of idiots following them. And they're like, Oh, swipe up to this, you know, I'll do this or whatever it is. And they don't realize how much they're greatly impacting the longevity of their brand. It's almost, you know, every person's career, everyone in the back of their mind is thinking, when is this going to end? When am I going to lose relevance? When am I going to, you know, hit that point of diminishing returns? And so many people are so blind to the fact that selling out with their authenticity now is only going to shorten the thing they're worried about. And I completely agree with you. And I mean, reading your tweets resonate like Twitter, your, the algorithms. If I log on, your tweets number one. Like, you, know, you, always, you always have that one person. And I love that there's controversy and there's certainly a lot of thought provoking. You know, how you fit it into that character account? I go off on these rants, but then you say something and I'll be like, huh. And like for, for, for social media, a platform like Twitter, for there to be such a, you know, huge amount of things for me to read. And on the first one, I'm already stumped. Yeah, no, it's very, to me, Twitter and, and rapping use the same, they use the same muscle. It's, uh, fitting, uh, I don't know, taking something quite profound and really, really condensing it and putting it into a short form. So I think that's why I do the same. Cause to me, it's just, it's like rapping, but without it needing to rhyme. So it's kind of easier. I suppose people, uh, listen to lyrics of rap and then unwind it. And then sometimes the more complex, you know, even now I listen to songs I haven't heard in 10 years. I'm like, Oh, that's what it means. But with Twitter, I suppose you've got the same thing. You, you can provoke someone with something, get them to challenge their own thought, anything paradoxical or even just, you know, everything in the media is so PG, so obviously biased towards a certain outcome. You're never challenged with a media kind of title. It's never thinking, have you thought of this? It's just objective or not often objectively. It just comes out with something to brainwash you rather than making you think. No doubt. So I'm curious. So when you started out, I mean, of course, people can see how much you, how many followers you have now and how much traction and how many books you've sold, all of that stuff. But as a fellow entrepreneur, I know that there's, there's a big story behind that, right? So can you talk us a little bit through about what that journey has been like over the past decade or so from when you first went um, independent full-time with your personal training to getting through the stage of putting out multiple books, which have done very well, built up an audience of you know, a million plus followers, etc. What has that, what's that journey look like for you? What's been the trajectory? Joe, it's interesting. Uh, British people never use the word entrepreneur. Uh, it's, you know, I think that we try and we're, we're quite sly with the way we run businesses. We're, we're certainly more, uh, you know, we're trying to virtue a bit more. We're like, yes, you know, I've run a business that helps people in, you know, in America. They're like, nah, man, entrepreneur. I want to make, <laughs> I want to make that money. Uh, <laughs> although both, both outcomes are very similar. Um, yeah. So in my first few years as personal training, I think one of my favorite kind of things that ever happened was, in my first two years of work, I was like, I love this. I could do this forever. And this is earning a very ordinary salary as well. And I think that's what makes you bulletproof in the sense that if you have a life you, you enjoy in the early years of a career, 
You're like, oh, sweet. Everything can go up from here. And even if it comes back down, I'll be back to a happy area. And um, I got very busy early on doing 30, 40 hours of PT a week. And for me, I think what was important was I didn't like prospecting. I didn't like talking to people on the gym floor. There's a lot of rejection. And, you know, anyone with an ego, you can be thick-skinned, but that's tough. And I thought to myself, how can I reach people when I'm PTing? I mean, if I put out something on Facebook or on Instagram, and then well, actually the first four years I was Facebook only. Facebook used to be the biggest weapon. And even now it's a weapon that I don't think people fully utilize. But I'll put a post there. I'll leave it to simmer. I'll go train people for three hours. I'll then come back and engage in the comments, maybe leave another post. And to me, social media was always like an interest savings account where all my friends were saving real money. But me, I was putting online assets in front of people, uh, trying to obtain email addresses and even taking contact information from people I thought was more powerful than taking five or 10% of my savings and putting them into, you know, uh, a good interest rate. So I ended up enjoying my life, enjoying my work and always using social media as that platform, interest savings account. And I didn't expect to pull from it for years. I thought to myself, if I sell a book now, no one's going to buy it. But in 10 years, they might. And even now I'm way ahead of my schedule. You know, this, I was thinking, oh, if I'm 35, I'll sell a book then. Or when I'm 40, I'll be the old boy in the industry, like gray hairs coming out. I'll say, listen, lads, you know, in my time, this is what I learned. And putting stuff in for the first, I mean, my first year on Facebook, about 800 followers. Then the next year it was 2000. So it was slow. Everyone's like, oh, overnight success. I'm like, no, I was buzzing when I had more followers than my rugby club. Yeah. And which was only about 1800. And then I only really discovered exponential growth when I was on the trajectory of it occurring. And all those relationships, all those posts, all of that traction suddenly got to a point where the acceleration, probably a bit like, you know, COVID, everyone in the early days was like, this is going to be bad as far as the infection rates. No one could understand exponential growth. But even if only one person told one of their friends 10 days after they discovered you, it still managed to grow. And it got to the point that about 27 years old, I had everything I could ever want from a business, but I came to the conclusion that I was bored. And that's a very difficult thing to have when you're running a successful business. Mm. And I just went to Australia one way, which, like you do, never wanted to go there before in my life. I was bored. I was on holiday in uh, ultra Croatia and I went to Australia. I was like, I want to get into the fitness scene. You know, I've always Australian fitness culture, even. I've just got back to London and even dating in Australia is a lot easier where if I wanted to, if I wanted to date someone, I'm like, Hey, why don't we go for a swim in the sea? Let's grab an ice cream. Let's go for a coffee. Let's do a coastal. And you'd be walking with someone having a coffee. So I thought that's where I want to get to. I got over there and trying to get into the fitness scene there. It was very toxic. It was very, uh, alpha male driven PT environment. Uh, there was no camaraderie between personal trainers and camaraderie. Even though we are all competitors with our own agendas, you get smashed so much out on the floor, getting rejected by people. You usually want changing rooms coming to and bounce bands away from each other. And I found myself on the other side of the world in an area where I didn't actually enjoy personal training anymore. So I was kind of nudged into the realm of having to work online and personal training online wasn't really a thing. It was something that only existed face to face. So I was one of the kind of original people that said, Hey, we're going to do this online. I'm going to send you your program. You're going to do it yourself. I will send you video tutorials of how you should be exercising. 
you don't have to worry about where I am, how my diary looks. You know, I'm going to provide you all the solutions without any of the headaches. Hey, your kid's ill needs to get picked up from school. Not a problem because I'm not going to charge your cancellation fee because I'm not going to see you face to face. And the online model began and the kind of scalable element of it became very difficult. Once I got to about 70 clients, uh, you know, although I was making 500 pounds a day, which is way more than what I was doing on the floor, I was very tired, couldn't service these people. So then I created uh, an app, the business partner called the James Smith Academy, where we took all of those processes and integrated them into an app, which meant we could bring the price point down to actually undermine the entire personal training industry. Because there is an entry-level requirement of affordability to become a personal trainer. And if you do not have £50 a week, even across the UK, you cannot get access to this. And a lot of group training facilities over time have then ended up taking that space. But I thought, let's get something a bit more personal and bring it in and started that. And the craziest thing about removing myself from the process and automating it gave me more free time for creativity, for content, for writing. So that when more things came across my desk as opportunities, I could take them because I created an infrastructure which would support any exponential growth on social media. So then Lad Bible did a piece on me two years ago, 70,000 Instagram followers in a week, 38,000 wow. in a day. Wow. And then when all of those hit the page, hit the link, went to the academy, I wasn't overwhelmed. Me and my business partner were like, we need to hire more coaches. So then we'd hire more coaches, give people jobs. I'd call up people from our gym. Hey, do you want to work remote? <laughs> and that's kind of put me in a place now where uh, I first wrote a book, not a diet book, which helped people understand the ins and outs of fat loss training, real basic kind of pulling myths and fallacies apart. And then the second book, Not a Life Coach, the, the story of Not a Diet Book, I was actually hammered with my publicists. And they were like, well, well we're getting carried away. We need to decide what we're going to call this book because it's not a diet book. And then I was like, that's it. We're going to call it. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, then we did Not a Life Coach where more so the journey and learning of before my career, getting myself off that blueprint, as you mentioned before, having the audacity to say, I'm going to do something I love and I'll figure it out as I go along. And the second book was about empowering people to to understand that a bit more because the majority of people that are, obese and overweight, I believe there is some element of unhappiness there. And that's not to to say people are, Jane says fat people are depressed. What I'm saying is there's some part of that life construct that isn't giving them what they need. And I can tell that because by the looks of it, they're turning to food for almost all of the happiness and they're walking encapsulation of that. So they're the two books. And now in essence, I operate a machine, which is my brand. And whatever controversy, uh, you know, good content, whatever I can put into the top of the funnel will bring me clients that I can help and books that I can sell to people that are going to put them in a better position. Awesome. Man. I love all that, dude. How did you, um, so you've, you've basically created a great system from an entrepreneurial standpoint. How did you, how did you learn to do that? Was that something you slowly figured out on your own or was there some sort of plan that you, you followed to learn that? Uh, so I was actually participating in similar systems for personal trainers. Okay. So um, my most recent meeting today, just before coming here, was with a guy who created a platform teaching personal trainers 
how to use social media. And okay. he came up as a sponsored post on Facebook. He said, are you a personal trainer doing too many hours for not enough money? And I was like, yes, <laughs> yes, I am. And when I saw he was offering services to 300 personal trainers at the same time, suddenly then it just clicked in my mind. I was like, hold on. I could be doing this for more people at the same time. And my business partner was actually another personal trainer from my gym. And he was leaving as I was taking his place. And I said, where are you going? Like, what gym are you going to? He goes, nah, man. He goes, I hate people. I'm off to build websites. Okay. <laughs> and, I, and I was like, I was like, you're the yin to my yang. We're both called James and now we operate the business together. So everything I do for a living, he hates and everything I hate for a living, he loves. Awesome. Awesome, man. Man, there's, there's so many angles that we can go from here. Well, what, what do you think are some of the, the big mistakes that people are making when it comes to health, nutrition, and fitness? Because we live in a weird time where there's this, there's this strange juxtaposition where there's never been so much access to great information and online coaching and books, audiobooks, podcasts, etc. The amount of information out there is phenomenal. And yeah, sure, there are some people, uh, you know, promoting nonsense, but there are also a lot of people putting out great content. But with that said, people do keep getting fatter and fatter. Obesity rises are going up. Levels of people being sedentary are going up. Um, I mean, in this past year and a half, we've literally just had a disease sweeping through the world, which primarily um, hospitalizes or even kills people who are overweight or obese. And that's sort of, you know, that that's, that's highlighted actually some of the real world consequences of this issue. I think if you talked about it prior to 2020, people kind of, I mean, even now, some people, there's this cognitive dissonance that goes on where people don't really want to acknowledge that or they try to frame it the wrong way or mischaracterize what you're saying. And I think, man, if any time should have gotten people to wake up to that and be like, oh, wait, hang on. Okay, maybe we can't be healthy at any size. Maybe pushing for uh, dad bods and fat acceptance and body positivity and all of that stuff in the way that's being done is not such a good thing. So what, what do you think is going on here? Oh, this is a big, this is a big topic. I'm going to enjoy this. <laughs> yeah. The first part of it about the amount of information on the internet, I think that there is a massive paralysis of options. I think having so much available stops people from doing anything. And I mean, if I go shopping for new aftershave, I get bombarded everywhere. There's this, there's that. Oh, you know, Calvin Klein is 16 cents. I'm like, I'm not, I'm not doing this. You know, you go there, I'm not, I'm sticking, I'm sticking with what I've got. Um, so that I think there's an element of that, but we can't just lean this obesity, you know, epidemic pandemic on the fact there's too many options. And I think that, I think we often remove ourselves from what we are. When we look at ourselves as humans, we see ourselves as these divine creatures, you know, but we are self-destructive. We lack rationality and we've created social constructs to be good. So, you know, have a family, you know, be married, bring up the kids, all of this. But really at the root of us, there is, uh, you know, this element of gluttony and greed. And, you know, we, we look away from this. I often joke about a primitive human being sitting there next to a branch of, you know, berries and, you know, they're not going to eat 30% and go, well, I think that's enough, you know. From the huge amount of time we've had on the planet, if there's any food available, we want to eat it. 
Now, the more hedonic it is, the more it excites us. And these are evolutionary kind of mechanical you know, processes that occur in the same way with even people in relationships that end up cheating on their partners. Now, I'm not saying that it's okay or it's fine, but I'm saying we are hardwired in both ways, men especially, to want to have sex. That's why there are billions of us on the planet. And when you bring these things kind of together, we are now having to fight almost who we are and what got us here in the first place. This is what I believe. And that means we need to bring in a huge amount of control. And I think that people think that there is a baseline position where we should eat just enough for what we require. But we're not. We're way beyond the baseline. We are creatures that need to very work, have to work hard, very hard, to really think and calculate about our actions on a daily basis. And I don't think people are willing to do the work a lot of the time. Now, it's very, it's all easy for someone who's self-employed to say, you don't want to do the work. And I do agree there are huge issues in the way. People that are brought up, big families on low budgets, you know, socioeconomic status, um, places people live where they've got so much to worry about that, you know, they're more worried about their five kids and getting two of them to school on time, two of them not creating anarchy outside in the hallway, and they kind of leave themselves last. But I agree, when COVID-19 was sweeping through the world and everyone was like, unhealthy people are dying, healthy people are okay, on the grand scheme of things, children are immune, and no, objectively speaking, we can say the majority of children were fine. A lot of people went, you know, this is this this could have been so much worse. It could have been, imagine if it went the other way and obese people were fine, people in good shape were dying and kids were dying. You'd be like, oh my God. So when looking at it from that perspective, over a year on, there's been no mention of be more active, get more vitamin D, prioritize your diet. There's been, you know, if we think about masks, I wear masks because I need to, but I I keep saying to people, like, hold on, do not get comfortable with this because this is weird. This is weird that I'm wearing a mask all the time. And I think we spoke about it a bit offline. When I see people walking down the street on their own, nowhere near anywhere else wearing a mask, it becomes more of a virtue signal than it does a protective mechanism. And I'm like, why has so much onus been on covering your face than sorting your life out? Mm-hmm. And I struggle with that and it hurts me deep. And, you know, there's a meme going around at the moment. I think it's the Belgian health, health minister. Oh, yes, yes. <laughs> and you're like, you're in charge of health. Negative luck, yeah. Yeah. From what you said there, I, I think um, to connect a couple of dots, I think what's happened in certain modern, in modern Western society, certainly, and you see this across a lot of things. And I think the whole mask thing and even the, you know, that, that versus encouraging healthy lifestyles, etc., is the majority of people, this is just the truth, and it's, it's a shame, but the majority of people take the path of least resistance, right? So whatever is the easier option or the option that makes them feel good or feel like they're doing something, even if it's not actually effective, versus doing something that's just hard but far more effective, the majority of people will opt for the first version. It doesn't matter if you could be talking about relationships or careers or health or finances, whatever it is, most people are going to just go for that easy option. And it's far more effective. I mean, if you genuinely wanted to protect yourself against not just this virus, but a lot of other ailments, um, from certain types of cancers, heart disease, etc., um, you know, eating a good diet and being in shape and having a healthy body weight, is going to do infinitely more 
than putting a piece, piece of cloth on your face. But putting a piece of cloth on your face, um, you know, it, it creates this, it, it, and I'm not here to, to debate the efficacy of masks, but it, it's more of a, I think it, it's certainly more psychological in terms of feeling like you're doing something than it is in terms of, okay, this is like really making a difference in protect, protecting me or other people. I mean, if I said, hey, I, I work out and I go to the gym to, to protect you, like people are going to laugh at me and say that that's insane. But, but actually it does, right? Like I, I, guys like myself and yourself, we're, we're not, we're not overwhelming the NHS, right? <laughs> I, I, bear, I, I can't remember the last time I even used, used it, right? Cause we do the, we do the, the healthcare before it gets to that stage. And I actually think, um, here's one of my radical notions. I think I tweeted this last year is I think the word healthcare, we should change the way that we think of it. Because by the time you're seeing a doctor or you're going to hospital, you're already towards the realm of emergency healthcare, right? The majority of healthcare, if you think of what that word should mean, it should mean nutrition, sleep, exercise, lifestyle habits, etc. Like you're actually responsible for the majority of your healthcare. It's just when something in that breaks down, when something goes wrong there, or something in your immune system breaks down, okay, then you need to go to a hospital or see a doctor, etc. But when people hear the word healthcare, they just think of the medical industry. Right. They're thinking about drugs. They're thinking about prescriptions and doctors and hospitals and treatments. And actually, I, I think it would be great if we could sort of take that word and reframe it. So when people think of healthcare, they think of health more holistically and they're thinking of what they can do rather than just outsourcing it to all of these other people. I completely agree. Uh, there's myself. People say, Oh, who's your GP? I'm like, I don't know. I don't, I don't. Yeah. <laughs> I don't use the doctors. I'm, I'm 32, you know. Um, I, I take care of myself. There's been, you know, a couple of times I've had to go to hospital when I've had stitches from playing rugby or, you know, something like that. But that's just general A&E. And, you know, there, there isn't this onus on it. And unfortunately, unfortunately, I suppose, but mostly unfortunately, we have these, again, movements that are coming in where people go, oh, you're fat phobic. You know, you're, you know, you're, you know, you've got a problem with fat people. And, you know, or you shouldn't even be calling them fat. And then I come in and I'm like, these, these are the people that I help. You know, I've literally spent the last 10 years helping these people. If I had a problem with them, I would have gone into a different profession. I certainly wouldn't still be in it now. And then people go, you know, everything that you're preaching is, is completely, you know, going to harm people longer in the, in the long run. If people diet, they'll end up more overweight. You know, there's, there's no way, no grounds you can win. It's almost as if people have gone, oh, overweight people and obese people they're getting a lot of stick from fitness people let's go protect them so i can feel better about myself let's go protect the overweight people and they come in they stand there virtue signaling you know you're a bad person for calling this person fat and then they, they pull out the most important card the mental health card you calling them overweight is ruining their mental health therefore you are the bad guy and we get into this vicious circle where you know, okay, but what are the mental health implications of being obese? What are the mental implications of, you know, having to go to a restaurant or more likely order takeaway because you don't want to sit in the restaurant, not fit in a plane seat? Any of these things. And we're kind of bypassing the, the serious problem to deal with people's feelings. And I think that, again, is another big issue that we're seeing in modern day society. Mm, 100%. I think the best way to summarize that would be doing what does good rather than what feels good. And I think in Western society right now, 
there's too much focus on feelings. This is not me saying feelings are totally irrelevant, but people are doing what feels good rather than what does good. I mean, it's the difference between virtue signaling and actual virtue. I mean, you actually help people, right? Like you, you help people, you help people lose weight, you help people improve their mindset, get fitter. You've got, you've got the receipts, right? It's tangible. You've got the receipts. If you just created a Twitter account and we're just, Hey girl, you're beautiful at any size. You can be healthy at any size. Hashtag body positivity, whatever. That might feel good and it might make other people feel good. But at best, it's doing nothing. At worst, it's actually amplifying the problem. Cause if you're telling people that if someone is actually obese and you're telling them that, Oh no, you're not fat or you're just beautiful the way you are or not just that, but you're healthy. That's actually a genuinely dangerous message because it, it's a lie and it's a destructive lie. And I mean, we've seen these, you know, I don't watch a lot of TV, but I've seen, you know, they've got these programs where someone weighs like 500 pounds or 600 pounds and you've got someone who's just there feeding them, feeding them, feeding them, saying, oh, well, you know, it makes them feel good. I like to make this person's favorite meal because it makes them feel. And I'm just like, you're killing that person. You're literally killing that individual. So that's like an extreme version of like where that weird misaligned compassion can go to. Um, whereas I think, and perhaps this is both of our secret power, which is, I think, I think neither of us don't really mind being seen as the bad guy, right? <laughs> as long as you know, as long as you know that you're coming from a good place and you're actually trying to help people, even if someone does say, Oh, you're fat phobic or you're this or that, like we can both kind of shrug it off and be like, no, I'm actually helping people here. We don't feel that need to shy away and defend ourselves too much. You know, it's, uh, it's interesting where in the beginning I said about, I spotted there was a social media kind of trajectory where, you know, almost like a stock market, very gradual rise over time. I was like, if I get on now, in 10 years time, this is going to be a great tool. However, a lot of people will look for the, the, the really small fluctuations that occur across that. And these are the trend hoppers. And there are trend hoppers now, especially in the body positivity and, uh, you know, health at every size movement where there are people that were posing in six packs three years ago, mostly females. They were competing on stage, selling programs, milking it, cashing in and making serious amounts of money. Their relevance has dipped. They see their following decrease and they go, look, there's a massive wave coming across the body positivity. I'm going to pull my leggings down that I've been promoting, hashtag ad. I'm going to pinch fat. And now I'm going to jump on this bandwagon to, you know, get relevance, get followers, get new prospects. But these people doing it are not, you know, imagine if, if I got my mum and dad who've never used social media. If I said, mum, dad, we're going to sit here by the side of the road. Every time someone obese walks past, press the button. These people that are doing this on social media would never get a button pressed from my parents. My mum and dad, when they put on a bit of weight, they get the bigger genes. That generation is gone. You know, and those people that didn't care about it quite so much. And then after time, they go, oh, I need to drink a bit less or whatever. But we have these people who blatantly are abusing the system in a popularity bid, saying, oh, you know, babe, you're, you're, you accept yourself any way you are. Because there are people that want to take the path of abuse resistance, like you said, and that makes them feel better for that second. They go, you're, you know, you're a princess, babe. You're, you know, the best thing ever. And the worst part is the comment section on these posts. I've heard about groups that exist online where 60 or 70 blue tick influencers sit in a group chat together. They notify the group as to when they've posted. 
and they will all go and send love to that person. So when someone arrives on the post, the narrative has already been set out by what they should be commenting and interacting with before. And it's, it's almost like stock market manipulation or like cryptocurrency. <laughs> and like, in, a, in a way, I, I kind of think like, oh, that's quite smart, actually. But in the same sense, like you say, this is damaging people long term because you can cherry pick any study you want. But objectively speaking, although you can be healthy at a relative size of obesity, if you were the same person at a lower level of obesity, you would be much healthier. Yeah, it's just a fact. And it penetrates every area. I mean, my dad's a medical doctor and has been for many, many decades. Um, medical doctor for almost 50 years. And even in the medical world, and this is, this is scary. And I think most people don't know this. I mean, this political correct nonsense also is impacting them. You know, doctors are receiving guidelines telling them not to use words like obesity, not to use words like geriatric, right? You're now supposed to say high BMI. Um, and elderly people, right? So you're not supposed to use actual medical terms in medicine. I mean, if someone says high BMI, that doesn't necessarily mean the same thing as obesity. I mean, as, as you know, with athletes, etc., or bodybuilders, you could have someone or powerlifters who is high BMI, but they're not obese. So actually, you need to be able to use the words properly. I mean, if you cannot say that a patient is objectively obese when they are, Again, it's this, it's this feeling good versus doing good thing. And I'm like, well, sometimes maximizing the feeling good does real world harm. Whereas if you tell the truth and you're honest and you actually try to help that person, sure, you know, it, none of us like receiving criticism. Let's be real. Nobody likes criticism. Nobody likes negative feedback. And sure, it'll hurt their feelings, might hurt their feelings a little bit, but we're adults, you know, <laughs> if, if someone else, uh, and, and it's also weird with this particular issue because it, it, it's quite unique to this particular health risk. I mean, if someone is a smoker, say, um, there isn't a huge movement trying to, you know, stop smoking, shaming, stop, uh, what, you know, it's like people are willing to objectively just say, you know, smoking is, smoking is bad. Smoking is not, is not healthy. Every person who even smokes knows that, right? So they're even they're, they're they're honest about it. It's not like oh, you know, stop smoke shaming. You know, if someone's addicted to heroin or whatever, you're not like oh, don't you know, drug shame them or whatever. It's very unique to um, obesity for some particular reason, and may, maybe that's because I think artificially there's sort of been an identity almost created out of it. I mean, not so long ago, I saw someone on Twitter use the term. I I literally. I literally laughed out loud when I saw this. Um, when she literally said the fat community. It's, and I was like, I was like, it's a community now. <laughs> it's crazy in the sense where if we were to look at your dad's professional career, we'd go, look how many night shifts, look how long his day is, look how short his annual leave is, look how many days he's just worked in the last two years. Let's have a look at all these things. Let's have a look at the, you know, sleeping patterns that have been messed up. Let's look at the debt he's accrued to take a job that helps save lives. Cool. He is allowed to call you whatever he wants. <laughs> a nurse, you know, just helped a patient take a shit. She is going to call you whatever she wants. You know, your feelings are at the bottom of the food chain in this social interaction. And I think that, you know, people, there are a lot more narratives of obesity that's talking about like, oh, bullying and, you know, all of these kind of other issues that happen with it. But 
ultimately, even though it's complex, we can't just bury it as a problem because of that. And you even see people very much tiptoeing around this narrative that obesity is a key contributor to deaths from COVID. You know, and why isn't that being kind of put forward? Because I suppose even tabloids and newspapers, that narrative may hinder their business. People, you know, go, oh, this news, this is the thing. That newspaper's attacking me. Attack. The word attack has been taken, isn't it? Someone said, James, stop attacking these people. I said, I haven't turned up and bricked them. You know, I'm not following them home and, you know, kicking the daylights out of them. <laughs> I'm not calling them out and rubbish. The word attack is like, it's, it's lost all severity. You know, I was attacked on the way home from the pub. What happened? Someone said something horrible to me. Mean, mean tweet. Yeah. Brilliant. Yeah. It, those words have been weaponized. Attacked, harmful, and dangerous. Those mm. three words have been weaponized in a way that is actually harmful and dangerous because they're just being used to shut down the truth, essentially. Um, you know, someone speaks the truth, expresses an opinion which is not super popular, and that's deemed as being harmful, hurtful, attack, and etc. And once you frame, the, that's all quite violent language, right? It's language that suggests you are you know, physically, like you're physically harming someone. Um, you know, writing something or making a video is not, a, not an attack. It's just putting out a point of view. It's really interesting, man. Um, moving on a little bit, though, how did you, um, I know you explained the concept of how you came up with the title for your book, not a diet book, but, um, what made you want to, what made you want to write it? So I feel that in everyday life, we have, uh, consumers on one side. So consumers, anyone that could ever need help improving their composition, even people that want to get better at lifting, but consumers in one place. Now, on the other side of the spectrum, we have the principle. And the principle for fat loss would be creating calorie deficit. The principle for muscle growth would be progressive overload. The principle for, you know, uh, programming for periodization for strength training, whatever it is. Now, the world we live in between the, the person that needs the information, the consumer and the principle are the methods. And the methods are dressed up systems. And systems are usually great, but a lot of people sell their own methods completely disregarding the consumer's need for the principle. And that, I believe, is tearing apart my industry, uh, the fitness industry, as well as your industry as well. You've got more world records than I do. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we now live in a world where it's so easy to hijack that middle ground of methods. And people are now, we're going through generations of the actual principle behind how things work isn't known. You know, how many adults in the UK uh, what's the one key principle that you need for fat loss? Uh, low carb, uh, you know, get, you know, give up sugar, all of these things. If I say to someone in the gym, say, how long have you been training? Two years. Uh, do you know what's important when it comes to muscle growth? Yeah, you know, protein shapes, you know, <laughs> and this, this kind of people are so disillusioned and they buy into these, uh, systems and there's so much propaganda and confirmation bias and, you know, like the ketogenic diet or things like this. So for me, wanting to write the book was, at first, I didn't actually want to write a book. I was, I completely misinterpreted the, the audience that a book would reach you. And I realized that having such a kind of punchy online persona, there are a huge amount of people that think I'm a, a knob. And I was like, <laughs> maybe, maybe if I write a book and it's on a shelf, they can walk into a supermarket and go, there's that knob. Now go over. 
they're going to see what this knob is written. (laughs) I wrote every page of that book thinking about someone who hates me, going into a supermarket, opening it, and being distraught with it because they liked what I'd written. And that was quite a a fun part of the book where they go, oh, that's actually quite interesting. And they read the next (laughs) bit. And they're like, I'm going to buy this knob. So um, that was really the main thing behind it. It was about getting into potentially the snowflakes a bit more, the people that go, oh, he's too rude, he's got a moustache, he called my uncle fat and my uncle's still upset about it or whatever it was. And really get into them. You can take people on a bit more of a story, uh, especially uh, technophobes as well who maybe don't want to use that. What do you think is the biggest misconception about you? I'm sure you might have noticed this as well where people forget, you're yourself on social media, that you're in a very busy room. Similar if... I'm in a nightclub. There's a woman who I really find attractive and I want her number. I can't just be James. I have to be a guy that's going to go over, talk to a stranger for five seconds. I have to be confident. I have to be sure of myself. I have to become someone, even just for a few minutes. Hey, look, I can see you with your friends. I think you're really attractive. I'd love to take you out for a drink. I've written my number on a bit of paper. I've written, you know, sales pitch, all of these things. You have to become the person for the moment. We have these for our life when we go to interviews or, you know, when we're auditioning for something and we really want that role, we have to become a different person of ourselves for that period of time. Now, social media is a very crazy, distracting room full of people fighting for attention. And often I have to fight quite hard for that attention. I think people forget that. They think, oh, this guy's loud, he's shouting, whatever. They, They forget where they are. Because people check their Instagram probably, you know, I would hate to know how many times in an hour they forget the platform they're on and they might jump to conclusions that one, I'm not a nice person or that two, I'm a rude person. You know, manners are probably one of my favorite. In real life, James is a polite guy, hold a door open for a woman, not to say women can't open doors, but you know, it, <laughs> I think that, yeah, yeah, that's me done. And I think exactly. that a lot of people can overlook that and people do need to remember that we are all fighting for attention. You know, the way you construct a tweet is to empower someone, but it's also to take that power from the algorithm away from someone who might have worse intentions. And yeah, I think that often if you're crass, rude, you know, using swear words or any of these things, it's all part of a tactical ploy. So that in a few months time when they join the plan, I can actually help. No doubt. Have you ever put something out there which made you in hindsight go, Ooh, I shouldn't have. I shouldn't have <laughs> pushed it that far or anything like that. Any that you genuinely regret? Not regret. I, I'm a really big fan of people like not saying, oh, what's your biggest regret? If, if it's a regret in my mind, the, the whole way I approach that is completely wrong. Okay. There are some things that I think I maybe should have taken a breath before. And do you know one that I got a lot of stick for recently, and I didn't delete it, I didn't edit it, I didn't do any of that, was one on privilege where uh, someone messaged me and goes, it's all right for you. You're white. You're cisgender. You're able-bodied. Uh, you're straight. And for me, it hits such a nerve because I wasn't disregarding genuine privilege. I was angry at the fact that someone had seen 10 years of hard work and assigned it to privilege. Yes. And that killed me. And I was like, you be <laughs> quiet. <laughs> you know, I'm trying yeah. to swear. Yeah, and I went back and I, and I said, do not discriminate hard work as privilege. That was the time. But then people jump to the conclusion, James Smith disregards privilege between people and the fact that some people have a head start. 
And when people take something and jump to that conclusion, the worst part was media picked up on it quite quick, especially in Australia. And uh, someone was like, oh, James, really found that interesting. I'd love to get a few comments from you because I'm probably going to do a piece on it. And I messaged Luke, who I work with. I said, mate, am I about to get set up here? And <laughs> I was like, what's going on? I was like, this is the only tweet where, or the only post where afterwards I've gone, this could get me cancelled. <laughs> and, and that feel, and then I was like, nah, I've got to wave this flag. Even if I lost Instagram, they'd be like, what a valiant guy, rest in peace, the guy that's now back in the gym floor. Yeah. And um, yeah, it, they posted it anyway. They literally took the post and just posted it on news.com.au just to see what reactions they would get from people. Mm-hmm. Uh, what, what are your thoughts on, you know, genuine privilege or the fact that I'm still my gender that I was assigned at birth? Do you think that is really the differentiator between where we are and where other people are? Well, as you know, every straight white male in the world is extraordinarily successful. Obviously, it's that simple. Right? <laughs> and obviously, everyone who doesn't fit into that category has been wildly unsuccessful. So It, it got me thinking, though. It did get me thinking. Where when, when it came through, I was like, am I, you know, am I a privileged white male? And then I was like, is this a classic thing that a white male would say? And then I've, I've got, you know, some of, like, some of my friends uh, who potentially could have been at a disadvantage. And, you know, you know when white people always say, oh, I've got, you know, I've got a black friend. I'll, I'll check in with that. It wasn't like that. But then I, even one of my ex-girlfriends, I messaged her and I go, am I? Am I privileged? <laughs> and some of them came back to me and were like, saying that it's almost gone the other way now. So if you're, uh, I, I did a TED talk about two years ago. I did it on the menstrual cycle, which was riveting. Um, yes. because it was one of, that one. Yeah. <laughs> and that's, that's some of the criticism I got. From it as well. <laughs> what do you know about it? And I was like, oh God. So I got some, I was trying to educate women on their own menstrual cycle and I got a lot of stick on that. And I, I sent an email to someone that worked kind of within that sphere. And I was like, is there any chance I could get, and, you know, another one soon? And pretty much the message I got back was white men really aren't on the agenda for quite a while. So, you know, and I, and they didn't say that like that, but that's what they were saying from it. And they were like, you're probably going to struggle to get a TED talk in the next two years. And now this is me very much choosing an anomaly to talk about a very big, you know, people are like, well, how many people are doing TED talks? But I almost felt there was almost like a tip in scales. And I'm not saying that it was racist against being white. It it felt to me almost like a, a compensation. And I haven't really figured out whether or not that compensation in itself is a good thing or is a bad thing. And it's something that I'm still trying to figure out. And I'm like, when when making these decisions, are people now making it as it's almost like we've lost the ability to discriminate on competence? I mean I'm I'm a pure meritocrat, right? I'm, all of this stuff is to me, again, it's it's a weapon. It's a weapon that is used often by people who I think I think sometimes people have good intentions, but oftentimes people have bad intentions. There's a lot of malcontent people out there who will beat you with whatever stick you allow them to beat you with. If you know they meant if they pull the white privilege card and you sort of flinch at it, then they'll say, ah, I can use this weapon against you, and they'll they'll beat you with it, right? If they can use your cis-heteronormative, patriarchal privilege, whatever, they'll they'll hit you with whatever stick that they that they can. 
So me personally, with all that stuff, I'm just, I'm just out the window. And, you know, you, you asked before, you know, <laughs> am I a privileged white male? I mean, it's like, I would say maybe you're a privileged white male, but you're not privileged simply because you are a white male, right? Like, I'm a privileged black male, but I don't think I'm privileged because I'm black or because I'm male. I think I'm privileged for a whole bunch of other reasons that have absolutely nothing to do with my gender and my um, skin color. And But yeah, I, I don't like this whole... It's also a new concept. I mean, I don't think I'd ever even heard the term white privilege until maybe about eight years ago. I mean, most of my life, it wasn't a thing people ever talked about. And something strange that's happened over the past decade, I've noticed, is privilege has become something that, like I said, is used as a weapon, right? If someone says you're privileged, it's almost like you're supposed to defend yourself against that, like it's an accusation. If someone tells me I'm privileged, I'm like, yeah, damn right. I'm I'm blessed by God. I'm super privileged, right? I'm like, I I own it. I'm like, yes, I am privileged. And And that's a good thing, right? Like, why would I... I mean, the truth is as well, if you're in the West, we're all privileged. If you're listening to this right now, you are, <laughs> compared to all the people who have walked throughout history, if you've traveled around the world and been to any developing countries, et cetera, and you're in the UK, you're in Australia, you're in the USA, et cetera, I mean, you're, you're already in the top 10%. That's just their, their reality of it. And what's interesting is the people who like to pull the privilege card. It's always privileged people, right? Nobody underprivileged ever will tell you that you're a privileged white male. It's always going to come from someone who is at least equally, if not more, privileged. And I, I don't know if people feel some sort of, like people feel this guilt or shame around it or something. Whereas for me, I'm just, uh, I'm very much in the agree and amplify camp because it, then people can't do anything with it because they're expecting you to be, oh no, and I, I'm supposed to start telling the story of my struggle and the things that they don't know. I'm, I'm like, yeah, you're right. I'm, I'm privileged. It's a, it, I was almost thinking about like a counter post to it, which in the end I didn't go with. I'm, I'm kind of worried about the messaging this gives people if you don't make the cut for the privilege, right? So someone goes, well, these are the attributes that we're looking for to attack someone from being privileged. So therefore there must be a counter opposite to that. And for instance, there used to be a shocking statistic in the UK of the percentage of the England rugby team that went to private school. And when I got slapped with that statistic, it then made me kind of think, oh, I've got less of a chance than I thought. And that, I think, is a really bad mindset for people to go, you know, oh, well, you know, oh, what school did you go to? Oh, yeah, oh, yeah, no chance. Yeah, no chance. Well, good, good, good luck trying, but yeah, it's not looking good because you carry that weight with you in your mind. And what happened to the days where, you know, the, there was the cliche stuff, you can accomplish anything you put your mind to. And I think the conversation should be more around that than it should be about any, kind of preconceived, you know, uh, passing criteria that people would need. And I, I really wish, or I really hope that that messaging that we are giving to younger generations certainly rings a bit truer to the kind of you can do whatever you want. Yeah, I agree, man, totally. And look, I mean, what is, you know, what what is racism? What is sexism? It's, it's prejudging or discriminating or making assumptions making grand sweeping people assumptions about people based on their race, their ethnicity, their gender, whatever. So I don't, I'm not someone like to me, it's a real simple thing. Like I'm kind of a fundamentalist with this stuff. It's like, if it's wrong in that direction, it's wrong in that direction, right? I don't, I don't go into this whole like, oh, well, you can say this about you know men, but if you say it against women, it's sexist. If you say it against men, that's just 
fighting the patriarchy. If you say it against white people, that's combating white supremacy or being anti-racist. If you say it about black people or Jewish people or Asian people, oh no, that's that's racism and that's horrible. I'm just let look. Level the playing field. Same rules for everybody. Equal treatment. That doesn't mean special treatment. There's people out there who simultaneously, like, you can't have both equal treatment and special treatment. So I'm just like, pick one. I'm into equal treatment, okay? right? I'm not going to be like super, I'm not going to walk on eggshells with you because you're a, I don't know, a transgender midget lesbian or something of color, um, right? <laughs> I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to treat you as equally as I will treat a straight white male or a, uh, a lesbian black woman or whatever, right? Because that stuff is just, it's immutable. It's nonsense. Like that's not, that's not who you are. Like, what's in your mind? What's in your heart? What's your character? Who are you? Right? Like, that's what matters. I mean, it's even weird with this whole, I don't know, like, right now we're in Pride Month and there's all the hoo-ha about that. And I'm just like, I don't care. <laughs> I don't care. Like, like why is there, literally, there's a whole month based on, like, who some people are sexually attracted to. And it's like, who cares, man? Like, um, just, I don't know. I'm just very much like, look, let's just all be normal. And stop trying to hit people with these with these various sticks of bigotry that um, people like to to throw out around. Because, and I also think you know sometimes it's kind of it can kind of be funny at a low level, but I think it can take into its logical conclusion the result is actually very dark and sinister. And we've seen that play out many many times. Whenever you take any group of individuals you know, based on immutable characteristics and you just assign some kind of guilt to them or some kind of shame or some kind of uh, negative quality or trait, given a certain length of time, it, it never goes well. It doesn't matter who you are, who's being targeted with it, but it eventually becomes an excuse to mistreat people. Um, and you're already starting to see that happen a little bit. And I know I, I kind of draw a line in the sand and like, no, guys, that's not. Let's not go back to that. Let's let's not go back to the 1950s and just do it in reverse. Like, that's not me. 100% agree with you on that. No doubt, man. So what have you got coming up next, bro? So I've got um, some more touring events. So I really enjoy doing uh, public speaking. I think that getting in front of a crowd of people is quite powerful. So for the kind of book tours, I'm still trying to get through the second book tour, uh, which has been a bit messed up because of COVID, but... I almost see it as like a, a one and a half hour TED talk where I can take salient topics from the book, but take them completely out of context. So it gives me, I write the book and then I pick the 10 most important topics and then I bring them in a whole new context as if I'm writing the book again. And I try and make it funny as well, where I kind of, I, I, I suppose I like making light of a lot of situations. So again, and now there are so many more things to tread around than before. One of them a couple of years ago was how when I would explain the menstrual cycle in the TED Talk or in my book, I'd explain it to women. But then I took that into a comical context and explained it to men. And when I was in doing that, I was funny with it. I was like, hey, guys, this is the part you think's bad. This part is not bad. Here's the part that's bad. I was like, if you have a stag do, if you have to go over, you know, lads weekend, any of this, avoid this area. And I was like, <laughs> and then I was even explaining to them, I was like, and this is when they're most fertile. And like, you know, having that joke, the women are nodding, they're like laughing away, they're like, oh my God, that's so true. The guy's are laughing. But yeah, it's um, it's all about taking that context, making it a bit of fun, making it engaging. So it's almost like a stand-up version of my book and then instilling things into, because some people do skim over chapters in books and they go, oh, do you know what? I never thought of it like that. 
So I've got that coming up. I'm pretty much from here on in. I really enjoy this, you know, stock market, social media climate, the way I am with like approaching, uh, you know, marginal gains the same way in the gym. When you're trying to lift, you're only ever looking for the next one or two kilograms. I'm not deadlifting a certain weight and coming back and going, I want to double it in a month. It's about just looking for that one next kilogram. And if I can find that incremental increase, cool. And if I don't, then I'll try something else. And that's me blinkers on. That's the mentality I give to everything in life. Same way that I practice Brazilian jiu-jitsu probably six, seven times a week. I'm only working towards the next strike, the next bit of tape on my belt. And then I'll take it from there. And that's the way I like to live life. I don't like the kind of idealism some people have into this huge trajectory. And, you know, it's unsustainable for a lot of people. So I'm really looking forward to just getting in my groove in the UK and building on from there. Awesome, man. And where can people find you online? Uh, James Smith PT. My mum and dad, like when it came to giving me a, a, a white privilege name, they managed to, <laughs> they managed to strip some of that privilege off by giving me such a, a common name. <laughs> no doubt, man. James, been so good to talk to you, bro. Been looking forward to having you on this podcast and really enjoyed this conversation. Cheers, mate. Thank you very much. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.